0: Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's up, everybody? It's the middle of summer. I guess it's the beginning of summer. It's amazing, I love it. I'm out here in California, digging it so much, surfing. I just got out of the water the waves were not good, but I just got out of the ocean, which was pretty fantastic. So now I'm recording this intro. We're getting this podcast this week ready to roll. My first question to you is, are you an insider? Are you in the cool kids club? Go to my website, paulsaladinomd.com front slash insider. Sign up for my insider. It's a newsletter, but I call it an insider because that's really much cooler, but it's a newsletter where you get all the cool stuff I'm thinking about every week. I talk about an article. I talk about things in my life that are interesting. I talk about what's going on on this podcast, other podcasts I've been on, cool things that are happening. And I talk about special deals that are available for insiders. So Paul paulsaladinomd.com front slash insider. Check that out. This podcast is also brought to you by Ancestral Supplements. So much appreciate these guys. You all know about them. They make grass-fed organ complex supplements sourced from New Zealand in gelatin capsules. For those of you who do not like to eat these organs, it makes it easier, and I really think eating the organs is important. That is the foundation of nose-to-tail nourishment. The one I want to tell you about this week is the bone marrow and liver supplement. Man, this is like a super charged supplement. You've got two of my favorite things. Liver is, of course, probably my number one favorite. We know that liver has all kinds of good stuff in it vitamin A, choline, folate, B12, copper, heme iron, riboflavin, liver is the best source of riboflavin, you guys, and selenium, all kinds of good stuff in the liver. I think getting liver into your diet however you can is incredibly going to improve your health. And then combine that with bone marrow. Gosh, we know bone marrow is going to have all kinds of fat-soluble vitamins, birds, Will drop bones onto rocks to access the bone marrow inside. We know that our ancestors have been eating bone marrow and treasuring the fatty tissues, especially the bone marrow of animals, forever. These are two of the most precious foods that we can get. And if they're hard to get at your local supermarket or you don't have access to them, the capsules make it really easy and convenient. So check out ancestral supplements.com, see what they can do for you. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. Also, I did some amazing filming with Juve this week. There'll be some stuff coming out soon. I've been using my Juve Light, my Elite, which is a full-body Juve, every day in the morning and at night. It's been shown to increase testosterone. It's been shown to increase ATP generation by the mitochondria. I'm actually going up to the Center for Deuterium Depletion next week. I'm going to talk to those guys. There's some hypothesis that perhaps... Red and near-infrared light affect deuterium in positive ways, too. So lots of cool stuff going on with near-infrared light. Check them out, All All right, you ready? This week's guest, you guys already know it because you read the introduction to the podcast, is Dominic D'Agostino. I was so stoked to get to talk to him. He is a tenured professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida. In the College of Medicine, he's a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. His laboratory develops and tests nutritional strategies and metabolic-based supplements for neurologic disorders, seizures, cancer, metabolic wellness. This guy is everywhere. He was a researcher, an investigator, crew member on NASA's extreme environment mission operation, which is NEMO-22. And he recently was a support diver in NEMO-23. We talk about that in the beginning of the podcast. He has a personal interest in environmental medicine and the methods to enhance safety and physiologic resilience in extreme environments. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, Department of Defense, private organizations and foundations. He is a stud. He knows his stuff. We talk all about cool stuff involving ketones, ketogenic physiology, differences from regular glycolytic physiology. Check out the show notes with the timestamps if you want to see all the cool stuff we talked about toward the end we started talking about cancer we talk about oxidative stress we talk about ways in which glucose based metabolism may be different from ketogenic based metabolism in terms of oxidative stress in the mitochondria this episode was super fun you guys you're gonna dig it you're gonna learn a ton you know that it's gonna be amazing so check it out and let me know what you think if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a review on itunes i really appreciate that this podcast is kicking butt It is actually in the top 10 health, fitness, and nutrition podcasts on iTunes now, which is just ridiculous because I just started it like a few months ago. So I'm super grateful to all of you guys listening, and I'm glad that it's valuable content for you. Please let me know how I can continue to develop content. If you are an insider, like I talked about at the beginning of this message, you can send me an email directly. And you can look on my website, you can send me an email directly, let me know who you want to see on this podcast, how to make it better. But if you like it, please let me know by leaving a review on iTunes, it helps other people get access to this. And that's ultimately what it's about. We just want to share the message with people, because there's a lot of cool stuff here. So enjoy this podcast. I appreciate you all. See you after the episode. All right, Dom, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's, I've been uh, super excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it's
1: been, uh, it looks like you've really been getting at it. And I mean, you started your podcast not too long ago, right? And you're just a few weeks ago. (laughs) I know it must be a lot of work.
0: It is. It's a good amount of work, but it's fun. And it means that I get to connect with people like you and have cool conversations. So, I know that recently you were in Florida doing NASA Nemo 23 and people yeah. might know about this, but they might not. I know you were also on Nemo 22 as an Aquanaut. Were, mm-hmm. you, were you an Aquanaut for Nemo 23 or was it your wife? Uh, that was my wife. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so my wife was a support diver and mission control uh, during 22 when I was underwater for 10 days, and she was under for nine days. And uh, we had a lot of research on both missions. So we had, uh, it ended up being, uh, for that mission, many IRB protocols. (laughs) We had to run through NASA and other, uh, we did gut microbiome, a lot of psych stuff, body composition, strength, uh, sleep, uh, psychological, you know, stress, a lot of of different projects.
0: So NEMO is this, it refers to these underwater missions three and a half miles off the coast of the Florida Keys, right? I mean, what are you guys doing mm-hmm. down there? You're going down to this, this underwater station that's like 60 mm-hmm. feet below the surface of the ocean yeah. and simulating space, right?
1: Yeah. NASA has like 14 or 15 space analogs where they, uh, they're kind of vetting out technologies, procedures, and various things for the space station. And then, then it gets tested on the space station, and then it's kind of uh, a deep space, gets selected for deep space. Um, yeah, so NASA, NEMO stands for NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. So it's N-E-E-M-O. And, uh, and essentially, when you're underwater, that simulates neutral buoyancy. So NASA has a lab at NASA in Houston that's called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab and we actually did our testing in there for the mission, but that's how they train astronauts. They have a mock-up of the space station, and if they do a spacewalk, for example, they will test, they'll do the actual procedure usually seven times or, or more uh, to, to, to replicate, you know, what it's like in weightlessness to do these procedures. So uh, the, the NASA NEMO mission, you're living in an extreme environment, which is saturation, Your body, you're living under high pressure, So it takes many hours to get back up to the surface and uh, and you basically run your mission just like you would on the space station. And even when you're down there, you talk to the space station. You have an opportunity to do that. Usually at some point in the mission, you talk to the astronauts, but NEMA has 14 or NASA has 14 different space analogs. And this is the one that actually trains astronauts. The other analogs are kind of like everyday people or engineers. Testing different procedures, but Nemo is very unique in that you're actually training and working with astronauts. So that that is a thrill to be, you know, part of that. It's it's a lot of fun.
0: Are you going to be an astronaut, Dom? Uh,
1: no, you got to submit an application to do that. So uh, if I did that, I would probably have to leave the university. It's hard to do. It's a full time commitment. So uh, I have friends that are, you know, applying and uh, and even. You know I, I think my wife would probably make a better astronaut than me because she's very she can multitask really well and she 's got a lot more dives than I do She, she works very good in operational environment, but she doesn 't want to go to space. you know I would like to go to space, but i 'm not ready to give up the science at this point at least, so it 's very, very competitive to get on so obviously when
0: you, when you were down there for twenty two you were doing a bunch of experiments. I saw photos on the website. Yeah. And- and you said you guys were studying all sorts of different things. You said you were studying the gut microbiome in this environment and sleep and stress and psychological stress. So that was, yeah. was that your role in NASA Nemo 22 sort of one of the scientists studying the changes to human physiology yeah. under those pressures?
1: Yeah. Uh, it, my getting on the mission actually I had to do a lot with the work that I do for the Navy, which is in extreme environments. And there, there's a lot of similarities between uh, the undersea environment and the space environment, right? A lot of, and you know, NASA trains astronauts, you know, in, in the water, neutral buoyancy. Uh, And uh, so after doing like several presentations, the science that we do here at the university is very relevant to space science. And, uh, and it was through a series of like presentations that I got invited to participate on that and and incorporate a lot of our science into the actual mission but we like to do space relevant research so there's a lot of things that happen in an extreme environment that needs to be understood and quantified and to develop potential mitigation biological mitigation strategies against extreme environments to optimize performance and safety in those environments cool so that was my sort of role in that
0: awesome And then in the second one, in Nemo 23, you said your wife was one of the aquanauts and were you doing support?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, doing a a little bit of dive support, uh, a few days and, uh, but mostly at mission control. So we had a big team. Uh, she had a lot of students. We have a number of, uh, undergrads and, and medical students that play, that make this possible because it's so much work to do all this. And, uh, and they each are assigned various projects and I help to like delegate and coordinate all that. So we are running on, on mission control side, running a lot of experiments and watching them in the habitat like 24 seven, cause there's a lot of cameras everywhere. So as they start to do like a particular experiment, we can observe that experiment and in some cases, guide them. In some cases, there's a time delay because you're you want to mimic the delay to the the lunar surface because this her mission was for the lunar surface for for uh, for uh, a moon mission. But we had a time delay for a Mars mission uh, at certain parts of it too. So uh, yeah, there, it's a lot more work actually to be in mission control <laughs> than it is to be. Uh, not that it's not a lot of work to be a crew member, but, uh, I would say it's equal or more work to, to work mission control. And my wife told me that when I was underwater and now I got, I had to experience that. It's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot what's, of fun. Too.
0: What, what's the time delay for a lunar mission or a Mars mission? How long does it take the signal to go back and forth? Uh, well, it,
1: it depends on actually like where it's at in the cycle, right? right. So, uh, so they simulated like a couple minutes, like I think it was like six or eight minutes, I think, for, for the Mars. And it varied, had every day, like they kind of experimented with different, different time delays. But for the moon, it was only like something like 10 to 15 seconds, I think, mm-hmm. uh, depending on where it's at. And, but that makes things, can make things incredibly complicated. And they don't do it all the time, but they'll do it under very space-relevant projects as it pertains to like European space agency had a a device to rescue an incapacitated astronaut on the lunar surface. So it's like mission control needs to dictate to them, like how to do things, uh, with that time delay at hand. So. So it was, it was pretty cool. We collected a lot of data on this mission. And even on the last mission, we haven't been able to sit down and analyze it and publish it yet. So we needed two missions to get a sample size. My wife's mission was all female and my mission was all male. So, uh, so we want to compile the data. And uh, so we don't really know yet how the gut microbiome changes, like in these, in these habitats.
0: That'd be super interesting. And yeah. personally, Having just gotten into surfing and become more of an ocean and water person, mm-hmm. I saw the photos and it just look really cool. I just yeah, the water. It's like you get to be a little bit of Aquaman. It looks really cool. <laughs> I was really jealous. It sounded cool.
1: Yeah, it is. the The Keys is a re- it's a really beautiful place and it's a uh, it's a sanctuary where we're at. So no other boats are allowed in in there. Uh, it did sustain a lot of damage from the hurricane, and we d- I did a lot of work with the crew on the, uh, coral reef project. And, uh, and some of those coral nurseries got like washed away. So we had to rebuild a lot of that and the actual habitat itself got damaged pretty severely. So, uh, so it was, this was supposed to happen last year and the whole mission got shifted one year because they had to repair. Uh, there's a life buoy that connects, to get like the Wi-Fi and to run the electric and things like that. There's a floating life buoy on top and there's a massive cable that goes down to that. And, uh, and that actually broke away and ended up miles away under some bridge. So that whole thing needed to be repaired. And that took quite a bit of time and money to do that. So,
0: (laughs) so both of those missions, you said you guys were down there or you were down there and then your wife was in there for nine days.
1: Yeah, I was down for 10 and she was down, for nine, and it took me like 17 and a half hours to decompress to get up to the top, and it took her like 15 hours to do a decompression procedure. Yeah, but when you're down there, you wake up in the morning and you're busy all the way uh, tonight, and you adhere to a scheduling program that NASA is using called Playbook, and it's a red line that moves across. Uh, a chronological sort of timeline and everybody's assignments are on that. And you have to stay in front of that red line. And sometimes that red line looks like it's moving incredibly slow, but most of the time it looks like it's moving like incredibly way too fast. (laughs) And you have to stay in front of that because if you get behind it, you're screwing up all the experiments and everything for the next guy that follows before you. So and it makes just everything go so fast because you wake up and it eliminates a lot of stress because a lot of stress in our daily lives are like figuring out what we need to prioritize and what we have to do. So that's like the big part. You know, you wake up and it's like wild animals rushing into your head, like what to do next, right? So with the NASA playbook, with that program, uh, I was saying I, I should use it in the lab here. You wake up and you know exactly what you have to do. Uh, The program has little notes on it. If the click, uh, we did a mini DNA analyzer and sequencer. We measured our skin microbiome and things like that. And there's like 58 pages about what to do. So it's very complicated, but everything is laid out for you. It's so incredibly well-organized and orchestrated and choreographed that you don't have to think about. And I realized that just thinking about, you know, what to do next when you're task-loaded that's like a big part of the stress of everyday life. And if everything is laid out, to, so it has motivated me to be a lot more organized in my everyday sort of activities that I do in the lab and, and elsewhere.
0: I totally feel that as like a budding entrepreneur and writing yeah. a book and doing podcasts and managing clients and then doing other media stuff. It's I've just been learning from other entrepreneurs. I was hanging out with Tom You yesterday. You must know oh, Tom. Oh, yeah,
1: I know Tom. yeah. yeah. It's awesome. I think, that,
0: yeah. I think that the trait that differentiates successful entrepreneurs from those of us that struggle is just being able to prioritize. And I think I couldn't agree with that more. During the time that I hiked mm-hmm. the Pacific Crest Trail, it was so simple. You always knew what you had to do. It was very clear. And mm-hmm. now, like you said, I get up and there's like six wild animals rushing at me and I can't figure out what to do first. And I'm trying to learn. So that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: And, and it's opportunities too, probably, right? Because- yeah. I wake up and I like to look at my schedule before I go to sleep. I'm kind of sleeping on it. And then I wake up and I look at my inbox to usually have between, you know, 50 to hundred emails that I kind of, you know uh, I tend try to not to look at my, if I have a writing project until about 12 noon, but a lot of them are like really good opportunities, like research opportunities to work with Ivy league institutions on various things. And it's like, you know, and, and many of them are time sensitive. So my whole, plan for the day gets derailed into following up quickly on these opportunities that are kind of time sensitive. So sometimes I'll glance at it and be like, okay, I'll come back to that in three hours after I work on writing my manuscript here or working, you know, meeting with students or something like that. So.
0: Well we could talk about Nemo for like the whole podcast, but
1: yeah, pe- every- check it out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Everyone <laughs> everyone listening will know you from the work you've done in terms of ketones and exogenous ketones, ketone salts, ketone esters, and a variety of things. So I want to get into that with you. And I'm sure the people will be familiar with you from Tim Ferris and Peter Atia. I thought that one of the the interesting places that we could start for people who may not be as facile with the subject is talking briefly about human metabolism and how we run on fuel and what fuel looks like for a human when we're running on glucose and then what it looks like when we transition into ketosis via fasting or via a ketogenic diet. And maybe we can contrast those. But as I was trying to wrap my head around this and sort of thinking back to medical school, the stuff that isn't really real when you're learning it in medical school, but feels more real now to me that I'm trying to apply Mm -hmm. it, I think that a lot of people might not have a great sense of how we actually run when we're, how the engine in the human body normally runs, say if we're eating just a standard diet on lots of carbohydrates. Can you walk us through that? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I guess most people like you're classically sort of trained in biology or nutrition. Like I went through a a nutrition science program uh, at undergrad and uh, you you are classically taught that carbohydrates are the primary fuel for the body. And to a large part, they are. And even when you're, and I'll get to this maybe a little bit later, but even when you're fasting or on a ketogenic diet, glucose is freely available as a source of fuel from different sources hepatic gluconeogenesis, the glycerol backbone of triglycerides, things like that. Uh, but what was really not taught to me and was not fully understood, I did understand even as an undergrad that lactate uh played a role in brain energy metabolism. And uh and that's something that I got interested in uh, in during my postdoctoral fellowship because I used a product called uh that had alpha L polylactate for recycling and things like that. So I understood like lactate as a secret alternative fuel, but my interest, you know, early on was for hypoxia and ischemia, brain injury with stroke and things like that to use various forms of lactate. But then I got turned on to ketones as a molecule that could provide millimolar concentrations in the brain. And the source of these ketones were, was fat. So that really interested me. But, uh, but early on when I studied, I was classically trained in electrophysiology where we make measurements in brain tissue. Uh, it's called patch clamp electrophysiology. And you can vary... Adjust the level of glucose and even use, like, a glucose blocker, like 2 deoxyglucose, to block glycolysis. Uh, so, I spent a lot of time looking from a more like a brain centric or neurocentric perspective, uh, with an understanding that the brain really did need glucose as its primary source of energy. And under periods of hypoxia, uh, putting in lactate could preserve the function of the brain a little bit more but i didn't really know anything about ketones and i studied this this was like my phd <laughs> so understanding hypoxia and brain fuels and things like that and it was only until i got funding by the office of navy research to study oxygen toxicity seizures did i kind of go back into understanding brain energy metabolism i was really focused on drugs at the time but i i ran across uh that the ketogenic diet was used for drug-resistant epilepsy. And I didn't really understand uh, or know at the time that the ketogenic diet was uh, sort of the standard of care for drug-resistant epilepsy. And it was the standard of care for epilepsy back in the 1920s before drugs even existed, right? So I delved back into the mechanisms through which ketogenic diet was working. And then I had to go back to my... Fran wrote a book, a metabolic physiology book, that I used as a graduate student in in nutrition uh, at Rutgers at the time. And I delved back into carbohydrate metabolism and how glucose gets oxidized and pyruvate dehydrogenase complex and insulin. Insulin really facilitates glucose metabolism by, uh, through a number, through transport, right? Transporting glucose across cell membranes through. Muscle, the muscle, the glut transporter, but also activating the glycolytic pathway to make it possible for glucose to be used uh, for fuel. And pyruvate dehydrogenase complex is one of the rate-limiting steps for that. Uh, so when I discovered that the ketogenic diet had been you know, used for years, Johns Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic, uh, one of the disorders was pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency syndrome, and another disorder was glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome so and i could understand you know mechanistically why these disorders were responsive to the ketogenic diet with the understanding that ketones were providing an alternative fuel in the context of these neurometabolic disorders so that sent me down a rabbit hole <laughs> to understand the neuropharmacology, uh, how the brain changes in response, and if this could be applied to the types of seizures that I was going to study. So I reached out to all the different experts, and at the time I was going back into my metabolic physiology to understand how carbohydrate metabolism was working from a systems physiology perspective and how changing your metabolic physiology changes your brain energy systems and the neuropharmacology of your brain. So this, this idea is not something that was very intuitive to me that if you change your physiology, that completely changed the fuel system that your brain runs on and it actually changes neurotransmitter systems. And like, I just thought the brain was the brain. It did what it had to do. It it didn't really change uh, based upon the fuel source that you were giving your body. So, but the brain energy metabolism and and to some extent, the neurotransmitter systems can change profoundly based upon our fuel system. So uh, so that led me down a rabbit hole, the ketogenic diet. And then I got into looking at fasting and this is about 2008, 2009. And, uh, you know, I became very interested in this idea of providing an alternative energy substrate in the form of ketones. Uh, in the context of a ketogenic diet, but the military was actually more interested in <laughs> developing a ketogenic diet in a pill. So they were more likely to fund a project that was more innovative and something that would, you know, more or less be developing various technologies that could elevate blood ketone levels in the millimolar concentrations that would represent an alternative fuel for the brain to keep the brain going under conditions of oxidative stress, which would be like a rebreather diving system that the Navy SEALs use. So uh, the work that I did early on and various model systems demonstrated essentially what was happening with oxygen toxicity seizures is that metabolic dysregulation was contributing to a membrane potential depolarization of the neurons and that you you get excess glutamate and aberrant electrical activity in the brain and glutamate excitotoxicity. And that triggers more action potentials firing across the hippocampus and even the cortical network. And the problem is that the brain is sort of overwhelmed with excitability and can't maintain its bioenergetic potential. And that triggers a seizure. And that was sort of what the models were telling me. And it had to do, is kind of complex. It led to reactive oxygen species. And I thought that was the key thing. If we throw on antioxidants, that could preserve brain function. But where do reactive oxygen species come from? They come from the mitochondria, right? So if you could preserve the bioenergetic capacity of the mitochondria and reduce superoxide anion production, which then goes to more reactive intermediates like hydroxyl radical, uh, you could dampen that oxidative stress and then preserve ATP, the energetic currency of the brain, and at least delay the the preserve, you know, delay that latency to seizure. So that became the idea, and it worked in the context of lactate. I knew it could work uh, in that context, and I became more fascinated with ketones just because of their ability to preserve brain energy metabolism and also lower reactive oxygen species. And then later on, like we learned that they could lower inflammation and activate endogenous antioxidant pathways through their histone deacetylase activity and things like that. So that became sort of uh, my primary focus as I transitioned into a tenure track position. And, uh, and we built many projects off this idea of therapeutic ketosis, not just with ketone esters and ketone salts, but the ketogenic diet some projects with intermittent fasting, but mostly ketogenic diet and various forms of uh, ketone
0: supplements. And there's so much there to unpack. So let's just break it down for people. So say, you know, you or I might not eat this for dinner tonight, but say someone goes home and they eat a sweet potato, right? And that's full of glucose, polymers, you know, that glucose then gets broken down, right? Or that those glucose polymers get broken down into, you know, glucose, insulin goes up and the body stores the glucose. It makes fat out of the glucose or it, you know, you get de novo lipogenesis, you get these glute transporters to put the glucose into cells. It goes into the liver. Mm -hmm. The glucose gets stored in the liver. And in the liver, the glucose goes through a process called glycolysis, which splits the glucose into two molecules. Mm -hmm. And that those molecules go through, like you said, they become basically pyruvate, right? And then- the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, and then that feeds into the Krebs cycle or the TCA cycle. And as you discussed, there's this alternative fate for glucose other than glycolysis, which is the lactate pathway, right? So Mm -hmm. we can go, glucose can go through glycolysis, or it can go to become lactate. Mm -hmm. And we can use lactate as an alternative fuel in the setting of inadequate oxygen. But if there's enough oxygen, usually when we're eating carbohydrates, we will make pyruvate. Pyruvate will go into the Mm -hmm. TCA cycle. The TCA cycle makes reducing intermediates, which deliver the electrons from the glucose Mm -hmm. to the mitochondrial electron transport chain. And then the electrons move across the electron transport chain and the mitochondria make ATP by sort of creating the gradient with hydrogen across the membranes in the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that our body runs the engine on glucose, right? That's the normal Mm -hmm. engine that we all learned about in school. And I just wanted to paint that picture for people. So and as you suggest there's this really interesting thing about the human body that we can also run on another fuel right we can glucose can go to lactate but we don't even need glucose to run our body do we
1: uh you do i mean some systems do right like right. your red blood cells for example the kidneys so baseline levels of glucose don't really change uh well they do change profoundly in the context of like type 2 diabetes and the normal <laughs> normal american right uh, but they do not even dip into what is clinically hypoglycemic, even in the absence of very little, if any, carbohydrate at all. Even in the context of short-term fasting, with more prolonged fasting, they can get down to like three or maybe even two point five millimolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that was always very kind of remarkable to me, kind of the study the gluconeogenic pathway and where those. Uh, glucose precursors were coming from. And that's still an area that we focus on. Um, but yeah, the, the body, I mean, we are basically designed to be incredibly metabolically flexible and we basically burn what we, whatever we eat, whatever macronutrient ratios, we are, you know, finely tuned to adjust to that. And some people can adjust better than others. And, uh, and we have some data that I'm excited that will be published soon that, you know, if, if you eat this way one time and then go back to eating, uh, another way and then go back to that extreme form of eating, your body adapts to that way of eating much faster. So it's almost like, uh, I think it like muscle memory, right? Like you go to the gym and it may take, uh, you know, five years to build up to like a a 400 pound bench press or whatever. And then you stop for a half a year and you go back and you can only do maybe 225 and it takes a while. It's not going to take you five years to get back up to, you know, 400 to get like, usually that muscle memory comes back, I believe. And I think, I think publications will show this, that there's metabolic memory, that once you train a particular set of metabolic pathways, and upregulate various uh, enzymatic systems in that, that, that your body will sort of know what to do. And I think you can see this in people who athletes that go into the off season, their body kind of knows what they do, what to do, whether it's a fitness athlete or powerlifter or something like that. And, and they just snap back into that metabolic state much faster, you know, and they adhere to a radically different diet, but their body adjusts much, much faster. So I think, you know, with the diet, the ketogenic diet, or even fasting, the more you do it, the easier it gets and the more benefits you derive from it over time.
0: And yeah, I guess my, I, what I meant was we don't need to take in glucose. But yes, I, I, I think, thank you for yeah. <laughs> clarifying that, that, that our body will always have glucose around. Absolutely. It'll you know, make glucose, but we probably don't need to take in glucose. So, and I love what you're saying there about metabolic flexibility, and let's get to that. But what happens if someone doesn't eat carbohydrates? Like, what changes happen in their metabolism with fasting or with a zero or very low carbohydrate diet? How does our body shift? into making ketones and using ketones? Mm
1: -hmm. That's a good question. So uh, I like to like simplify it as much as possible, but the first thing that typically happens is that you have a drop in your blood glucose level. If you just stop eating or eliminate all carbohydrates. So you will actually have a drop in your blood glucose. Uh, And if you're eating a ketogenic diet where you've moderated the protein, the you'll, significantly reduce the postprandial elevations or excursions in your blood glucose and also the, the corresponding uh, elevation of insulin, which will facilitate glucose transport and glycolytic pathways, right? So fasting or carbohydrate restriction in the context of the ketogenic diet, uh, you have a protracted, prolonged suppression of the hormone insulin, And a corresponding increase in the the elevation of uh, glucagon. And in the beginning, a lot of people experience, uh, can experience an elevation of stress hormones like catecholamines, epinephrine, and cortisol can also go up, especially initially. And these things will sort of, it's the body's way to to help liberate some of the stored glycogen that you have uh, through glycogenolysis. So you'll start to release some glucose in the liver. And then once liver glycogen is depleted, the liver is really the energetic sensor of the body and coordinates very well with the brain. And, uh, and you know, liver glycogen is is kind of like a fuel tank and your, your brain can sense that and you start, start to get some neuroendocrine changes in addition to, uh, Uh, facilitating the suppression of the hormone insulin and elevated catecholamines will liberate uh, fatty acids from adipose tissue. And those fatty acids will uh, be mobilized. They get to the liver that stimulates beta oxidation of the fatty acids. And as you, you have greatly accelerated fat oxidation in the liver, essentially you'll be uh, yeah, beta hydroxybutyrate going to acetyl acetate and that splits to two, uh, acetyl CoA molecules. And, uh, or we're not even that. So the beta oxidation of fatty acids will make acetyl CoA and that'll condense to acetyl acetate and ultimately beta hydroxybutyrate. So that would be, uh, ketogenesis. So that happens. And then ketolysis is the other way around. Uh, So these ketone bodies are not used by the liver itself, but they're produced in very robust amounts in the liver and they lack an enzyme uh, succinyl CoA transferase. So without this enzyme, the liver is very greedy. Typically like when you eat protein uh, or carbohydrates in a meal, the liver will take what it needs and then put the rest back in the system for your muscles or your brain. So the liver is even more greedy than the brain. Uh, so the liver will take what it needs, but the liver produces these ketone bodies, but does not use them for fuel. So they lack an enzyme that's interestingly deficient in many cancer cell lines too. lack succinyl CoA transferase. So many cell lines either are completely absent or significantly deficient in this enzyme that would allow them to convert ketones to energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, not all cancers, but many are, So you have ketones spilling into the blood and they are uh, go to peripheral tissues. The heart and the brain have the highest capacity. Um, They have the highest metabolic, you know, capacity of of other organs and they uh, will use ketones and suck up a lot of the ketones and, uh, and glucose too in the system. And your muscles Uh, We'll use ketones, but we're not completely, we're looking at muscle now, but I've spent most of my time looking at the brain. And then we're looking at the heart too. Uh, But skeletal muscle will also use ketone body. So, and this can be shown if you consume something that elevates your ketones to a high level, and then you go exercise, you clear those ketones faster. And you can do like a, a ketone tolerance test, right? So you take glucose And athletes can clear the glucose very fast because they're very good carbohydrate theologics. And uh, an elite athlete will also use ketones very fast. So they will clear the ketones from the blood very fast. Uh, My highest levels of ketones have been when I'm just completely sedentary. And if my levels are elevated and I go do some activity and come back and measure, they'll be significantly lower typically because I'm using them as fuel. Um, So, Now, getting back to your original question, like this is, I guess, addressing, you know, how is your metabolic physiology changing, right? So you're continually suppressing the hormone insulin, elevating glucagon, uh, mobilizing fatty acids for fuel. Uh, Fatty acids don't get used very well. They don't cross the blood-brain barrier to a significant, some of them do. We actually find that MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides and short-chain fatty acids can cross the blood-brain barrier and be used as fuel. But generally speaking, long-chain fatty acids do not cross the blood-brain barrier, and they are uh, broken down into ketones. To some extent, medium-chain triglycerides have a higher ability or capacity to be broken down by the liver. They are transported directly to the liver via hepatic portal circulation, and they become ketones very fast relative to long-chain fatty acids. They have to get packaged into chylomicrons and things and then go throughout the lymphatics to become... So uh, MCTs are very unique in that regard, and some people can tolerate them, some people can't, but we, are, we do a lot of work with ketone esters and ketone salts and stuff, but I always come back to MCTs because you know they're found in nature, they're remarkably unique fatty acids, and they have the capacity to augment other forms of exogenous ketones uh, in regards to delaying gastric emptying or being sort of a ketogenic carrier. And augmenting uh, sort of uh, the pharmacokinetic curve of various ketogenic agents that we develop that are synthetic, so they have a place, and they're found in nature too. So, uh,
0: and in nature, MCTs I'm aware of them in coconuts. Where a uh, coconut oil? Yeah. Where else do you find MCTs? Pump, in Palm kernel, kernel
1: oil. oil. I mean, you could find them in a little bit in milk, like like goat's milk and a human breast milk has some MCTs in it. Um, but yeah, the majority of MCTs sold are, uh, you know, palm kernel oil or majority probably coconut oil. Mm-hmm.
0: Has anybody ever looked at animal fat? I wonder if animal fat has MCTs in it. Like, yeah, it does. It does.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Like, like uh, one of the things that I eat not, is like,
1: not a whole lot, but milk, a yeah. milk does. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah. And, uh, Yeah, there's some, they get used as fuel so, so quickly. So they're not typically found in high concentrations in meat, Uh but mammalian milk has it.
0: Has it. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things I've heard you talk about that I think will be interesting for people is I like how you outline sort of in the acute phase when we stop eating or when we transition to a low or zero carbohydrate diet, we deplete our glycogen first. And then the fatty acids get released and we do beta oxidation. We make ketones in the liver and then ketones move throughout the body. They get used by the brain. They get used by the muscles if we're exercising. And then one of the things that's interesting for me is how we adapt to that level of ketosis. What if we stay in ketosis? And we could stay in ketosis by doing an extended fast or by eating a diet, which is ketogenic. Mm -hmm. And I think this is such an interesting thing. There's so much discussion or I think there's misinformation in the community that when you go into ketosis, you're going to activate your stress hormones. And like you suggested, I think that when people acutely adapt, there is some evidence for that. But my impression is it doesn't happen long-term and that those eventually normalize. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Because people will often knock the ketogenic diet and say, oh, you're activating your sympathetic nervous system. You're activating cortisol. And it's not what I see clinically once you get to be keto adapted. So how does that, if we pull that timeline out a little further, what does it look like if you stay in ketosis for weeks or months? And how does our body begin to adapt to that?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the patient population or the, the people to, to look at in regards to this are people who have been following the ketogenic diet for decades, right? And, um, you know, I met some of them. I was in Washington, D.C. at a neurometabolic sort of disease conference where I had the opportunity to meet with people, you know, uh, many people who have been doing this for many years and uh, they have uh, their blood work looks fantastic actually. And they're on it like a pretty legitimate high ratio ketogenic diet. That's in upwards of anywhere from 75 to 90% fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are unique metabolic entities and not, not everybody's going to respond the same. I, I, it needs to be understood how females differ more than males. And I think the female physiology is more reactive to a hypoglycemic event. And I think in the beginning of fasting or the ketogenic diet, I mean, we've had students and and people in the lab and uh, several females that try to fast, you know, they, they get lightheaded, they faint, they have problems. And I've never experienced or males have never mentioned that they had that problem. Right. So I generally think that males may be a little bit more resilient when it comes to fasting or being able to carry that out. Uh, And I think their hormonal systems are maybe more in line with being able to do that. Uh, So, you know, I can only speak like me personally in the blood work that I, that I've seen and and whatever you know published data is out there. Uh, I have seen that if you calorie restrict, so there's the ketogenic, there's the effect of calorie restriction, right? And and it needs to be said, and it's not often talked about, that many of the benefits of the ketogenic diet I feel are due in part to calorie restriction. Not all the benefits, but. The ketogenic diet makes calorie restriction feasible, and when your ketones are elevated, that has a brain stabilizing effect and perhaps a satiating effect, a protein satiating too. But I believe that it helps stabilize the brain in a way that makes it easier to to sustain a calorie deficit, which then gives you benefits. <laughs> to uh metabolic benefits and and many of the benefits that people talk about the ketogenic diet gives or even the carnivore diet uh it's my opinion that a lot of it has to do it's hard to put a percentage on it but about two-thirds of the benefits i feel are due to this calorie restriction effect and and the suppression of the hormone insulin so uh, I think that's important to people for people to acknowledge because some people will tell me they eat more calories on a ketogenic diet or they feel like they are, uh, but they're still losing weight. But I think if they really track their macros, they would see that they've actually been adhering to uh, a calorie deficit, but it may have fixed many of the maybe pre-existing metabolic problems they had, maybe their gut microbiome, maybe uh, maybe they've... Started working out and put on muscle, which spiked their metabolism. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things going on from a metabolic physiology perspective and from a hormonal perspective that need to take that need to be taken into account. And these will impact the long term success and trajectory of the benefits you'll get from this dietary intervention. And that what what I think is so remarkable is that and I have more appreciation for this is this can vary dramatically between individuals. I mean, we just had a three hour lab meeting today with an inbred strain of rats and we saw tremendous variability <laughs> in rats that were given the, the very exact dose of a ketone ester over time, even in the blood levels of that. So, so this variability is there are many factors, obviously genetically, these rats are the same, but there may be external factors. One rat may have a personality where he just moves around more in his cage. You know, one, mat, one rat may be stressed out for some reason because of some event that happened with, when he got dropped or something like that. So uh, there are so many different things to, to be taken into account. So uh, I think anecdotal information is kind of important, but for our lab, we always try to rely on sort of, we've learned to rely on, sort of the more data the better, <laughs> especially when it comes to the ketogenic diet because there's more variability uh, than I predicted early on. But I will say there's less variability in ketogenic diet responses and neuroprotection responses than there is to drug responses. So when we test various drugs or antioxidants, the data is all over the place. But when I started studying therapeutic ketosis, the the variability in the data went from this to like this and everything started to make sense. And it was working, you know, through all these different uh, disorders, neurological disorders that we're studying. So I've never experienced that with any kind of drug. I don't think there's any kind of drug that sort of gives this like you know, global response and protecting the brain that therapeutic ketosis does.
0: So there's a consistent neuroprotective effect to the ketones that you've seen. Yeah.
1: Many model systems uh and uh, everything from things that I never would have thought of, like Angelman syndrome, which we have, we've published in a mouse model and now have a clinical human trial on that to various types of uh, epilepsy from putting in a neurotoxin to hyperbaric oxygen, seizures to uh, absence seizures, which are like having a seizure, but not the tonic-clonic part. So we've published in a number of different model systems. Uh, And that's pretty interesting that a therapy independent of the etiology tends to have a therapeutic effect. It's not like there's a specific drug for this or that. It tends to work across many different types of neurological disorders, even not just seizures.
0: Right. Well, let's dig into that a little bit because I've heard you talk about HDACs, which people may not be familiar with, but these histone deacetylase and the fact that like, I think that it'll be interesting to dig into this a little bit for people like, what are these anti-inflammatory mechanisms of ketones and what are these protective mechanisms with ketones? How do they have to do with histone deacetylase inhibition? And maybe we can tie this into reactive oxygen formation and kind of give a perspective for people here.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to, uh, I like to approach things from a little bit of a, more of a broad perspective. There's been some elegant work, and I'd like to see it reproduced by uh Eric Rodin's lab was the first to publish in science that beta hydroxybutyrate functions as a histone deacetylase inhibitor, uh, class one and two, I believe. And some some more work is now emerging showing that ketone bodies can have uh epigenetic functions and can turn on various uh Genes or even gene programs that can confer resistance against oxidative stress by activating things like superoxide dismutase or catalase. And that's very attractive to me because these are the things that scientists who study what I study for years, oxygen toxicity, have focused very specifically on these antioxidant systems. And they are believed to be the cornerstone by some people, to believe to be the cornerstone. And the root cause uh, deficiency of the enzyme itself, or the activity of of the enzyme has been thought to be a root cause of many age related chronic diseases. So uh, an elevation of reactive oxygen species will elevate chronic inflammation and you get a host of inflammatory cytokines like uh, IL-1 beta and IL-6 and these things get elevated. And these, these, Inflammatory cytokines, a a hub that sort of activates them would be an inflammasome complex called the NLRP3 inflammasome. So there's there's some data to indicate that ketones can suppress oxidative stress and also suppress the the complex that when it's activated uh, sets off an inflammatory cascade of cytokines and in various model systems, this is the endogenous metabolite ketones have been very uh, a powerful regulator of histone deacetylase inhibitors, which activate antioxidant systems, and also they can suppress the NLRP3 inflammasome, which, when activated, sets off an inflammatory cascade that is the root cause of many uh, age-related chronic diseases. Uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, radiation injury in the brain. Uh, You have the activation of this complex causing neuroinflammation. So this has attracted many pharmaceutical companies that have reached out to me and and even uh, given talks or discussed this, that pharmaceutical companies are trying to sort of reverse engineer a drug that can work as powerful as beta-hydroxybutyrate. And uh, and that's interesting. It's like you know, there's something in nature, but they want to figure out. It's not fully understood how it works. It, it it's working in different. It's working not only in the assembly of this this incredibly complex inflammasome molecule, but it helps to augment the assembly and also trigger the activation uh, or inactivation of this molecule and regulate it in that way. But in, in inflammation, serves a very important role in the body, and it's how we adapt. And uh, you know, for skeletal muscle, that inflammation process is very important for initiating the remodeling that's associated with skeletal muscle protein synthesis and things like that. So you don't want to knock it off completely, but you want to regulate it in a way that, to prevent that systemic chronic inflammation.
0: And so there's a lot of terms in there. I just want to clarify for people. When we're saying HDAC, we're saying histone deacetylase, and they're histone deacetylase inhibitors, right? So in our bodies, we have DNA, which is genetic material, and it's wrapped up around histone proteins, kind of like a ball of yarn. And the simple mnemonic that I learned in medical school was methylation makes genes mute, and acetylation activates genes. So we can acetylate or methylate histone complexes, meaning we can add methyl groups or acetyl groups to the sort of histone DNA ball of yarn complexes, and those will either open up the DNA or close the DNA. Did I get that right? Exactly. No, that's
1: that's a perfect explanation. Uh, And uh, so beta-hydroxybutyrate tends to do a number of different things and functions through the acetylation. Uh, So one of the things that we study is Kabuki syndrome, where there is a suppression of acetylation of a gene, and the suppression of that acetylation contributes to what is known as Kabuki syndrome. And it's a very rare uh, genetic disease. And we have mice from Johns Hopkins, where we are looking, doing the behavioral studies, but also measuring those uh, the effect of ketones on acetylation and gene uh, transcription and translation. So that was nicely put. Like yeah, we don't fully understand how this is working, but we know it is working. And now we're kind of delving mechanistically into uh, from a very kind of molecular level. So how beta hydroxybutyrate is doing this. And I think, I believe that other metabolites can do this too. I think it's known that, you know, acetyl-CoA and and other metabolites, maybe succinate, fumarate, malate, citrate. You know, I think there's other TCA cycle intermediates that could possibly have epigenetic function. I think it's already shown, but uh, I believe it's something that we have not really focused on, but it makes sense that many of these metabolic intermediates are epigenetic regulators. And I feel like this will be a big, I think a lot of people in molecular biology will start turning to metabolism and various metabolic intermediates as epigenetic regulators. And our epigenome is much more important than our genome. (laughs) I, I believe that.
0: I think I would agree with you. And by that, what we mean is that our genome is the actual A's, T's, C's, and G's, the alphabet of our DNA that gets transcribed into RNA and becomes proteins. And what we're talking about now with epigenetics is the modification of the DNA on these histone complexes, the turning on and off of genes, right? The so
1: Expression, yeah.
0: Expression of genes. And so that's yeah. the methylation and acetylation. And what you were describing with Kabuki syndrome, if I understood it correctly, was that there is inadequate acetylation or inadequate turning on of a gene. And that mm-hmm. in the experimental models that you guys have seen, and I think some clinical experiments, the use of ketones has been able to turn those genes on when they're not turned on properly in those patients. Is that correct? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Essentially like reversing gene silencing. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. In mouse models. And we think that's, you know, hopefully it's going to work in humans.
0: Humans. And so the epigenetic you know, modification of human genes or any genes is the methylation and the acetylation. And so it's so profound and really paradigm shifting to imagine that metabolites like beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is one of these ketones. And like your others, like you're saying as well, we're finding out that these TCA, this is the tricarboxylic acid cycle or the Krebs cycle intermediates may also be epigenetic regulators. That kind of makes sense. You know, our metabolism is this really intricately connected, elegant, dance through all these Mm -hmm. things. If people are not familiar with the Krebs cycle, it's the sort of thing that's used to torture, you know, Dom and me during our, Mm -hmm. during our graduate work and we memorize it, but it is a, it's a basically a series of intermediate steps that starts with acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetate. And it moves through various molecules. And Dom was describing succinate and fumarate and citrate. And these are all Krebs cycle malate. Yeah. These are all Krebs cycle intermediates. And they they can then uh, form epigenetic regulating. They can become epigenetic regulators themselves. But if you look up the Krebs cycle on the internet, it'll be traumatic maybe don't look it up, but what we're describing is this metabolic sort of uh, pathway that runs most of our metabolism. We referred to it earlier when we were uh, talking about the way that we make energy in our cells. Mm-hmm.
1: The other thing that you've mentioned- and it, is, it is a cycle in the right. textbook, but uh, there's lots of little shuttles and things coming off of it right. that I think are not in the textbooks that I think uh, new research is showing that it's really not well, it is, you know, that cycle will always be there, but I think there's a lot of things going on that we don't fully know or appreciate yet. And, uh, and I think that's important, uh, to understand. I think, I think metabolism will sort of have a Renaissance and the, especially the appreciation of metabolism in, uh, in epigenetic regulation, mm-hmm. I think will sort of get a lot of attention or well, it already is, but over the next
0: couple of years. Let's talk a little bit about mitochondrial function with ketones and how it differs mm-hmm. from carbohydrate based metabolism because we've mentioned reactivity of oxygen species a little bit and mm-hmm. as you know you know reactive oxygen species are necessary for life and there's sort of this sweet spot it's what we call a yeah. U-shaped curve you know we don't want zero reactive oxygen species which is personally why things like hydrogenated water don't make a whole lot of sense to me but that's neither here nor there but mm-hmm. You know, clearly there are many diseases where there's too many reactive oxygen species and we have oxidative stress, right? Let's define for people what oxidative stress is and talk a little bit about how ketones can interact with the mitochondria to change oxidative stress phenotypes.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, oxidative stress is so there's a balance, (laughs) a redox balance that the body has in many different uh, genetic programs like gene pathways, enzyme systems. Uh, I look at various ion channels that are redox sensitive, which means the balance of, you know, the redox balance of the state of the cell can regulate an ion channel which impacts cellular excitability of neurons, for example. So uh, many different systems in the body are responsive and regulated by the levels of antioxidants and oxidants. So there are redox regulators on the NMDA receptor, you know, the glutamate receptor and things like that. So, uh, so that should be appreciated. And there's always a baseline level of reactive oxygen species being formed in a perfectly healthy system. And in the context of, uh, Cancer—it's actually much higher, and that could be something to talk about. That's an aberrant sort of oxidant, and it, it's a double-edged sword in, in many ways. Uh, but the body does a, a very it is very elegant system that regulates the balance of antioxidants and and oxidants in the body. So the main source of this are the mitochondria and the semi ubiquinone site of the mitochondria, where molecular oxygen. Um, can uh, so at, at this site, if if beta hydroxy getting back to ketones and sort of the root cause of why we're talking about this is that beta hydroxybutyrate can essentially oxidize Q of this cytochrome, w- and if Q is oxidized, it's less likely to uh, to form a reactive uh, intermediate called semi called uh, superoxide uh, anion, right? So that's like the precursor reactive oxygen species that can go and uh, superoxide dismutase can work on it and break it down to uh, uh, break it down that pathway to hydrogen peroxide uh, and then catalase can further break that down but under certain conditions say for example uh, if you have like high iron or you're under stress where there's a lot of free iron or there's traumatic brain injury where heme molecules are broken down. uh, You can drive various reactions that can make something that's biologically fairly inert, like superoxide anion, being produced continuously by the mitochondria. If there's oxidative stress or under certain conditions, that superoxide level can skyrocket. And that that happens with high levels of oxygen. And I study that in the context of oxygen toxicity seizures. Uh, It could happen... With aging, it could happen with giving your body glucose. <laughs> high levels of glucose and high levels of insulin and metabolic syndrome can further exacerbate the endogenous production of this superoxide anion. And if your brain and metabolism are not healthy, you tend to get uh, higher levels of, of like heme iron being released. And uh, you drive things like the fentanyl reaction, which can basically... Uh, cause the formation of hydroxyl radical, which is much more reactive than superoxide and can start oxidizing membrane lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, and that can ultimately start to cause genomic instability and metabolically induced genomic instability can actually activate oncogenes, right? Which can contribute to cancer. So, uh, you know, if you can... If you're giving a carcinogen that's damaging the mitochondria, uh, or radiation is a perfect example, right? Or uh, maybe things in our food supply, too, are a perfect example. That chronic metabolic stress in the form of altering mitochondrial superoxide can result in the overproduction of oxygen free radicals, which lead to oxidative stress. And these free radicals can damage you know uh carbohydrate molecules uh, lipids proteins especially and nucleic acids and the uh the bioenergetic capacity of the cell also regulates genomic stability right so as the mitochondria produce ATP if that's impaired ATP levels in the cell fall And the nucleus of the DNA has pretty high energetic demands to maintain DNA repair uh, in the nucleus. And if the ATP levels fall by not producing sufficient amounts of ATP or producing excess superoxide anion and shifting it more to an oxidative state, that will destabilize the nuclear genome and the cell senses an energetic crisis. It activates various oncogenes which uh, many of them are things that activate glycolysis. And then you get a potential, you know, transition of a normal healthy cell. If various oncogenes, depending on how many hits uh, the nuclear DNA has, can activate a complement of genes that transitions a normal cell to a cancer cell, or just you you live in this chronic sort of inflammatory state where you have suboptimal Metabolic health and suboptimal organ and systems health.
0: So much there to unpack. Them. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Let's break it down for people. I love it. This is so cool. So, you talked about ketone molecules. So you talked about beta hydroxybutyrate in some way, perhaps we understand the chemistry, perhaps we don't, affecting the production of the super anion radical, right? So, superoxide. And that is because of Q, which is part of a complex in the mitochondrial electron transport chain. And when, when we say Q, I don't think people will understand what Q is, but th- there's basically inside the mitochondria are these little bean-shaped organelles in our cells that have two membranes. And in the innermost membrane of the mitochondria, there is this series of proteins and uh, f- molecules that pass electrons along them. This is the electron transport chain. And one of those complexes, which complex is it that has Q in it? Well, it's
1: between complex one and two. It's a semi-ubiquinone site. Okay. Or semi. And that's sort of, it's the shuttling of the electrons Electron. between those sites, which is sort of problematic from, okay. from typically between one to three. And one to three. And it's, there.
0: and it's a semi-ubiquinone site mm-hmm. and there's a Q molecule in there. What does Q stand for? Yeah.
1: Oh, I forget the actual term. I should know, but yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> My students know for sure. There's a yeah. molecule Q, yeah. right? Yeah. And
0: you, what you were saying, if I understood correctly, was that ketones affect... The, the redox state of Q, or they affect if, if, if there is too much oxidative stress, that somehow Q can interact with the environment and create more of superoxide. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so the, the free radical, the, the reactive oxygen species, the superoxide is actually produced at that site. Mm-hmm. And uh, superoxide anion, in and of itself, is not highly reactive, mm-hmm. but then uh, can cross the inner mitochondrial membrane and where there's superoxide dismutase typically handles it. Uh, So ketones can get through both membranes, and then ketones can actually activate mitochondrial genome and cellular genome to actually stimulate superoxide, uh, uh, superoxide dismutase. So the more of that antioxidant that we have, the less likely the superoxide will go off and do bad things like oxidized membranes.
0: Oxidized membranes.
1: It's a a very dynamic interplay. So you have, you know, ketones potentially enhancing electron flow, contributing to reduce intermediates to drive the electron transport chain uh, to bioenergetically maintain that membrane potential of the mitochondria, and you have ketones also influencing epigenetically regulation of genetic programs that are enzyme systems that help preserve that redox state of the mitochondria.
0: So and the ketones can affect the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome. People may not know that we have yeah. two genomes. We have mitochondria have their own DNA, nucleus has yeah. its own DNA of cells. So what you're saying, and this is super interesting, is that the, the ketones can cross both mitochondrial membranes and through mechanisms mm-hmm. similar to what we were describing earlier, affect the epigenetic regulation of genes in the mitochondria that can increase our activation of superoxide dismutase, which is, gonna, which is how we turn the superoxide anion into hydrogen peroxide, and then catalase can turn that into water, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, so, and that mitochondrial genome is very sensitive to, uh, to DNA hits too, right? It doesn't have the, re- the robust DNA repair mechanisms of the nucleus. So really preserving mitochondrial ATP production is the most important thing for the health of any human or cell or tissue or whatever. So uh, it really does come back down. I don't want to sound biased, but but metabolism is, and the food that we eat is essentially our metabolism is really the root of uh, general health. Like the mitochondria kind of call the shots. (laughs) And you could say that for neurological diseases, overall health, and even cancer too.
0: And I want to talk a little about cancer before we wrap up, but I also want to highlight something else you said that that in some people there is a specific sensitivity to glucose creating more oxidative stress, or perhaps ketones could be uh could you know calm down this oxidative stress, but glucose in some people can create more of an oxidative stress, and we know that we're using glucose, but I just want to make sure that I heard that right and highlight that for some people a carbohydrate based metabolism more create may create more of these. Uh, free radical type intermediates, more of the superoxide, et cetera?
1: I think so. So the problem, so some people do really well on carbohydrates, and they are people who tend to be, for genetic reasons, they have a high carbohydrate tolerance, and they also moderate their caloric intake to prevent uh, surplus calories in the form of carbohydrates that lead to wild postprandial elevations in glucose or uh, insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. Right. So uh, the, that can be incredibly <laughs> problematic when you have uh, hyperinsulinemia, big postprandial excursions in blood glucose, and people that are actually like healthy, like even a healthy weight, you can see these. Uh, it's the spikes, the relative changes in these things are probably more important than the baseline. Right. So that's why if you do blood work, if you look at your blood glucose, it's really important to measure the, the post, the spikes in blood glucose and stuff too. Hemoglobin A1C may give you a little bit of a snapshot, but, uh, but things like HSCRP, you know, I think that's a very important molecule, uh, to, to, look at. And we do a whole cardiometabolic profile, uh, a very simple profile that I think gives a, a very good snapshot of what's happening in the body.
0: When I did a podcast with Tommy Wood, we talked about the it's the mean or the median amplitude glucose excursions, the mages. Are you familiar with this term? Yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit, a little it's, bit yeah. Uh-huh. It's basically the idea that that postprandial glucose excursions are more predictive than overall glucose, and
1: yeah, and the about, area under the curve, right? If I'm yeah, looking at that, yeah, uh-huh. yeah.
0: And so, for people listening, what we're talking about here is just the idea that there are these excursions in blood glucose that can happen within the time after you eat, which is the postprandial period. Prandial means eating, so postprandial. So Mm -hmm. the mean amplitude glucose excursion or the median amplitude glucose excursion, I don't remember exactly which one it is right now, but it's called a mage. And it's exactly what Dom Mm -hmm. is talking about. These postprandial glucose excursions are probably more damaging for us perhaps from this oxidative stress perspective and in terms of cellular damage. And so we can't really see these unless we are wearing a continuous glucose monitor or specifically Mm. checking glucose multiple times a day and including postprandial checks. One of the things I have some of my clients do is a fasting blood glucose and then a few postprandials throughout the day. But we could miss these postprandial excursions. Now, this is what I was just thinking, Dom. Do you think this is one of the mechanisms by which we're generating insulin resistance in carbohydrate intolerant individuals? It seems, because I think that there's been so much evidence now to suggest that insulin resistance is in fact, in many cases, an oxidative stress phenomenon. And it it seems like this is potentially tying it all together here, that in some people who are insulin, excuse me, who are glucose intolerant, when they exceed their glucose threshold of intake or carbohydrate intake, the mitochondria kind of flip out. And you get more of these reactive oxygen species produced in the mitochondria, and there goes the chain. Then you get this inflammatory type of insulin resistance. It seems reasonable to me that this could be one of the mechanisms of an insulin resistant thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you allow me to speculate, because I can't point to any study, <laughs> but uh,
0: we love I speculation, do,
1: especially yeah.
0: when it's coming from Dom.
1: <laughs> well, I know experimentally, if you produce a a uh, a state where there's oxidative stress and you produce a pro-inflammatory state, you get insulin resistance and and pretty profound and you can titrate, <laughs> almost titrate it to where you, if you incrementally increase oxidative stress or incrementally increase uh, the formation of specific cytokines, we'll just say inflammation, you can incrementally increase insulin resistance over time. And what sort of a model is this? Uh, a number of different model systems. This is just kind of a collection of all the data from some of the rat works, mm-hmm. some of the things observed clinically too. When you're under stress, you have you know, like acute insulin resistance, right? This is always like a, a profound, I remember talking about this with Peter atia like years ago, like, you know, talking about what do you think? I mean, we always kind of delve into this. What do you think is causing it? I think he's still in the dark too. <laughs> as, the, as the, We just don't know. But, the statement that I'm comfortable in making is that activation of pro uh, inflammatory pathways and, and oxidative stress contributes to hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. And if that's protracted, it can serve an important biological function, Physiologically, under some circumstances, but this seems to be sort of like the norm for for many people, and it and it leads. It's the precursor to uh, metabolic syndrome and advance and it's hard to reverse. the The farther that goes, the harder it is to to sort of reverse. It takes an equal amount of time to reverse it, you know, as you mm-hmm. stay mm-hmm. in that state.
0: And I could speculate a little bit and say that from what I've observed, or at least. And what I'm placing together, it seems that in some people who are not carbohydrate tolerant or who are carbohydrate intolerant, excess glucose and excess energy could be driving that at least to some extent. And I think there are other mechanisms of insulin resistance that could be inflammatory as a primary driver. But it's an interesting mechanism here to kind of link glucose and uh, insulin resistance in these individuals. Mm-hmm. So. I want to respect your time, but hopefully we can just talk for a few minutes about the Warburg hypothesis and cancer, and we can just contrast these. So people may have heard of the Warburg hypothesis or the Warburg effect in cancer cells. And I think this is a really interesting thing to break down for people yeah. just at a high level. Um, so what, is, what are we talking about when we're talking about the Warburg effect? and how? Because it kind of ties into this mitochondrial thing, right? And you kind of mentioned it. We've already kind of tiptoed mm-hmm. into it with mitochondrial ATP production and protection of the nuclear genome, but how to tie this all together for us with regard to cancer and, and, uh, you know, production of oncogenes and how it relates to ketones and mitochondria.
1: Sure. Uh, the Warburg effect. I mean, I think Otto Warburg described it as insufficient respiration or oxidative phosphorylation. We talked about a little bit uh, with compensatory fermentation. And I think my, my colleague, Tom Seyfried would describe the, and I, I would too, that insufficient respiration, uh, a result of mitochondrial damage. Uh, without a doubt, I think we can all agree that it's mitochondrial insufficiency from a bioenergetic perspective. The question is, and it's, it's still hotly debated in the field, and I think before... Uh, you know my my colleague who wrote a book on this cancer is a metabolic disease, and I co-authored uh, a review on yeah. this. Yeah, Tom, Thomas Seyfried from Boston College. Uh, it was not given as much. I think his book and him being um, a very vocal advocate of the this Warburg effect being uh, the and damaged respiration being the cause of of cancer. So there was this, you know, if you go back to the seminal paper, I think in 2010, I believe, or no, before that, uh, yeah, maybe 2010, um, uh, the hallmarks of cancer and it probably predates that. And then later on the hallmarks of cancer was revised to include, uh, altered, you know, mitochondrial activity or bioenergetic, uh, aberration in, in, in energetics. Mm. Uh, so the, the cancer as a metabolic disease, that perspective is that damaged mitochondrial respiration results in, uh, in uh, a decrease in the cell's ability to maintain its bioenergetic potential, right? So ATP levels fall and through uh, retrograde response, the nucleus senses the level of energy and talks to the mitochondria, and senses an energetic crisis. And that fall in ATP not only impairs DNA repair mechanisms, but the nucleus senses the fall in ATP and also activates a number of genes, some of them being oncogenes. So some of the genes are glycolytic genes to increase glycolysis because oxidative phosphorylation makes about 80% to 90% of ATP typically, but if oxfos ATP production goes down, glycolysis needs to come up. Uh, The activation of these glycolytic pathways, there's a lot of overlap with various uh, oncogenic drivers, I guess you would say, that are required to maintain cell viability. So you activate a complement of genes and some of them uh, in the right context, can be things that can transition a normal cell to healthy. So the the field generally believes that mitochondria in cancer cells are perfectly healthy and normal, and they produce ATP. Exactly. This is the uh, other side of the equation. The other side of the equation, yeah. You know, I think it's. I, I think it may be in the middle, you know, somewhere. But I I err on the side of. Thomas Seyfried's work, obviously, I'm a little biased. I was, uh, but I come into this as a pure skeptic. So in 2010, I wrote, I read his uh, review article, "Cancer as a Metabolic Disease," and I read it and reread it, and then I checked all the references before even talking to Tom. And then I just found his number and I had to call him at his office. And I was like, I need to talk to you because if this, (laughs) if what he was proposing. Is actually, even if it's like 70%, like right, that has profound implications for not only how we treat disease, but how we would prevent cancer from occurring uh, and, and increase our odds. So, but nobody else was even approaching this subject. I couldn't find anything that even remotely discussed, like, the context of cancer as a metabolic disease. But what he had written. And more importantly, what he had justified with uh, a lot of references that were very good references I had never seen before. A lot of these references came out of developmental biology. I mean, these are high impact, you know, journals citing uh, uh, citing this this sort of hypothesis that he had, which was uh, sort of it's taking the Warburg effect, but but stepping it up a notch. It's almost like a step function in our understanding of the Warburg effect in the context of uh, the initiation and, and the whole carcinogenesis process. And I was not trained, you know, in, in metabolic oncology or even cancer biology, but I had to go back to the books and just really study this to see if it made sense because it actually explained a lot of results i was seeing in a cancer cell line and i was just using this cancer cell line to validate some system that i built hyperbaric atomic force microscopy and laser scanning confocal microscopy it's a whole system part of my fellowship project and i was just tinkering around with cells and looking at a cancer cell line and what he was explaining and breaking down in this review was explaining the observations that i was seeing And no one had seen these observations before because no one had like microscopes inside hyperbaric chambers. But I was seeing things that the only explanation that made sense was uh, what he was explaining in this review article with damage respiration uh, that cancer had defective mitochondria. I was measuring superoxide anion production in uh, human glioblastoma cell lines and they were producing massive amounts of free radicals with high levels of oxygen, which could only suggest that the mitochondria were damaged in some way, and cancer cells will overproduce oxygen free radicals to basically damage the the healthy cells and oxidize membranes. And they're also dumping out lactate, which acidifies the microenvironment, and that facilitates the invasion and metastatic process. So, uh, so I was kind of looking at these cells underneath a a confocal microscope and seeing sort of. Things that were in line with what he was proposing, and that initiated, I think, in two thousand eight or nine, my obsession with this understanding if this was you know <laughs> something to explore. And in about a year or two, uh, I you know embarked on a project looking at the ketogenic diet and hyperbaric oxygen, and it became the PhD project of my student at the time, a Dr. Angela Poth, and she did her PhD on that, sort of studying this Warburg effect.
0: So when when you were saying the Warburg effect is inadequate phosphor inadequate electron transport chain with uh, overexpression of fermentation the fermentation being the mm-hmm. fermentation of glucose into lactate so yes. these cells don't do glycolysis well is that correct?
1: Uh, they no they do glycolysis they like very glycolysis. well they right. don't do oxi- their Gly- oxi- Gly- their capacity for oxidative phosphorylation is dramatically reduced right. It, and there's a compensatory fermentation that allows the allows the cancer cells to maintain their life and that fermentation serves not only to produce ATP but also to drive various uh, biomolecules into anabolic processes to form more membrane more proteins nucleic acids and things like that so and I think that needs to be appreciated because, you know, it's viewed by many uh, cancer biologists that the Warburg effect is an elegant uh, oncogenic transition in, in gene activation to allow uh, cancer with there's still an elusive enabling, like we don't really understand oncogenically, you know, why, and it can vary between different cancers, uh, but that Warburg effect serves a very important function you know, to basically direct uh, biomolecules for, you know, biosynthetic processes. So there's, you know, and the more aggressive the tumor, the more rapid the expanding biomass of the tumor, the more acidic it is, the more damaged, damaged, more aberrant the mitochondria and the faster it could grow. So, and that's all important. And people can talk about, you know, if, if it, I think it is important to understand if damaged mitochondria is the cause. Exactly. Uh, of cancer. So that's very important. Uh, but we, and, and we are focusing on understanding that, but we, at this point in time, are really focusing on targeting that damage after it occurs. So, uh,
0: how to mitigate it? So,
1: yeah, developing metabolic based therapies that are not just a ketogenic diet. That's a, a part of the equation, in some cases, maybe a small part, but it's, it's a combination of you know, diet, supplementation, perhaps time-restricted eating, hyperbaric oxygen, and a whole toolbox of drugs that can be used to target specific glycolytic processes, maybe HDAC inhibitors, anti-inflammatory compounds, things like that. So we are, we are working on that and uh, putting together a more comprehensive approach that could be used uh, as an adjuvant to current standard of care and maybe in the future uh, things like the PI3 kinase inhibitors that uh, Dr. Lou Cantley is working on. He has shown, for example, that the ketogenic diet, by suppressing the hormone insulin, actually uh, unmasks the, the therapeutic potential of PI3 kinase inhibitors. So in the absence of the ketogenic diet, those amazing compounds don't work very well. So the ketogenic diet actually kind of makes it work. well. So I, I think that's going to be the case for a lot of other things that we're kind of looking at too and maybe immune therapy. And I believe, you know, chemotherapy and radiation therapy would work much better. My colleague, Dr. Adrian Sheck has shown in animal model systems that uh, only in the context of a ketogenic diet did it really, you know, did, did the standard of the care therapies have a dramatic effect only in that context because mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, but uh, so it's a very rich area of research right now where I think taxpayer dollars and NIH funding need to feed into answering these provocative questions, but also probably more importantly uh, to direct funding, to putting together more comprehensive metabolic based therapies that are less toxic. I think that's the most important thing that should be uh, getting attention right now.
0: And so basically what we're saying here is that, I've heard you say this, so correct me if I'm wrong, in like 90% of tumors, we see this Warburg effect. In 90% of cancers, the mitochondria are damaged. And the main question becomes, did the mitochondria get damaged first or did the nucleus get damaged first? Isn't that kind of what everybody's debating? You know, like where is the damage coming from? Because the mainstream thinking around cancer, which may need to be updated or is always evolving is that, Oh, there are these oncogenes in the nucleus that turn on. And that is how cancer starts. And this sort of metabolic theory of cancer that you're working with, or sort of discussing with Tom Seyfried, and I want to get him on the podcast too Mm -hmm. is perhaps proposing a different hypothesis. And I don't think anybody really knows the answer, but it's interesting to think about, like, wait a minute, what if the nuclear mutations are coming from mitochondrial damage in the first place? Because once we know where something starts, we can get a better sense of how to fix it. But isn't that kind of what everyone is debating here? Like, where is the DNA damage coming from? And what is the first part of a cancer uh, of these cancers, you know, uh, being triggered, because in the majority of cancers, 90% of cancers, we see this Warburg effect with damaged mitochondria.
1: Yeah, solid tumors for sure. Yeah. And there's, you know, leukemia, lymphoma, uh, that's a little bit different, but I but I still think it, it applies to them. I mean, from a 30,000 foot perspective, if we say, you know, genome stability, uh, and preserving that is the most important thing to prevent cancer, right? So what what factors influence the fidelity of the nuclear genome? Like what, what factors influence that stability? I would say the bioenergetic state of the cell. And, you know, in earlier years, I focused on the redox state, the oxidative to reductive state, but that's influenced by the bioenergetic state of the cell. So which is comes from the mitochondria, right? So if we can preserve the bi- viability and the functioning of our mitochondria, uh, and that can be done through nutrition, it can be done probably through drugs maybe in the future. Uh, but I think that is the most important thing that the mitochondria, uh, you optimize them for making <laughs> ATP and, uh, and that ATP will serve its function, their uh, DNA repair mechanisms, and there's a lot of crosstalk between uh, the DNA or between the mitochondria and the nucleus, and that uh, there's a lot of different molecules. It becomes incredibly complex, but I think <laughs> I'll try to make it as simple as possible. I think for, you know the most important thing is that we do things to uh, enhance the uh, the function of our mitochondria, and that's you know nutrition lifestyle. I mean it's these things have been said for decades, millennia. A,
0: even, right. A ketogenic <laughs> diet can really help with that, right? I mean, that's sort of what I we're think. talking about here is that like there's yeah. pretty good evidence. A lot of it is your work specifically that a ketogenic diet can be kind of protective and helpful for the mitochondria. Yeah.
1: Now whether we should all be on a ketogenic all, right, right. diet all the time, I mean I have been pretty much, uh that remains to be, you know, that's, that's a, a debated question, but I am in contact with people who have been on it for decades and they're doing remarkably well. Obviously they need to be on it for various medical reasons, but, uh, but I, but I think w- without, I mean, just kind of taking a step back, periodically entering a state of ketosis is probably a natural thing. And if we're not ever entering a state of fasting ketosis or nutritional ketosis, that is very unnatural. And we're putting our body in this sort of protracted state, in many cases of being overfed. And, and I think it stimulates, you know, we talk about autophagy, and, and that could be produced with a carbohydrate diet with calorie restriction. But the easiest way to do it to implement this is carbohydrate restriction, intermittent fasting, and periodic, like legitimate ketogenic diet. You know, and I think if and some people are just not interested in optimizing their health. But I think in, if people are genuinely interested in, in this, uh, it's probably the biggest tool in the toolbox to do it's that, a huge, I think. It's yeah.
0: a huge lever. I want to let you go so you can get home to dinner. Last question. Thanks, what, yeah. <laughs> well, your, your wife is going to be mad at me. I'm sorry. Uh, what is the most radical thing that you have done in the last week, my friend? This is what I'm starting to end my podcast with.
1: Radical thing, man. Uh, you kind of got me stumped on this radical in the last month.
0: You could say in the last month, in the last week. What's the most radical thing uh, you've done recently?
1: I mean, a, a big risk for me, and like for various reasons, bet we bought a farm. You oh, know, cool. <laughs> yeah, so we actually had a farm, but we bought uh, a significant amount of property to where. Uh, I am working day and night and spending a lot of time at night figuring out what we're going to do on this farm. So it was a major investment in in time and and resources and things like that. And now I am working very hard at preparing the land to do sustainable farming. And I'm doing a lot of research and investigation on how to best uh, produce a chemical-free organic, sustainable farm with a high diversity of plants and animals. So this is a big jump for me because (laughs) I stayed, you know, uh, I I farmed when I was younger, but this is sort of a, uh, a big project for me. So this was, and it all happened in the last month.
0: That's pretty radical, man. That's pretty cool. That's pretty exciting for us. Yeah. That's super exciting. Dom, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you and your work?
1: yeah uh, I would tell them to go to ketonutrition.org. and I also like to uh, kind of plug the metabolic health summit yep and this uh, little Tumblr thing was made for me uh, that I am uh, I helped to co-organize that with my colleague uh, dr. Angela Pop and Victoria uh, so just go you know search metabolic health and I usually post about it on keto nutrition too. And, but Keto Nutrition has a blog. It has a lot of people ask me what products, you know, if I have a product, I don't, I don't sell products. I don't have a product. (laughs) Maybe in the future I will, but the products that I use and I love, and I, I mean, I'm testing products all the time, right? So this is an unmarked cookie here (laughs) that I get from people. They, They send it to me and I measure blood glucose and things. And the things that actually are legit ketogenic and that have quality ingredients, I put on my site. Awesome. And uh, and some of them, uh, I have to disclose that I do have some of them. I have affiliate links or code or something like that, and that should give you a discount. And then all that that money goes back into our research too. So if you're buying products from there, too, you're helping to support you know some of the research that we do too. Cool. So keto nutrition, all that, all the info is right there.
0: Ketonutrition.org. Metabolic Health Summit is in January, right in Long Beach. Uh, we are making
1: arrangements for that. I'm not sure if the exact na- date is nailed down, but I think it is. So I'll have to check with Angela on that. Okay, they do. I'm just like a figurehead. They do all the heavy <laughs> lifting and organizing, and then, you know, I'll speak probably. But yeah, they do all the work. It's a lot of work putting cool. together.
0: Cool. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Yeah. I met, I met Victoria recently at KetoCon, and yeah, I'd love to come to Metabolic Health Summit and meet people and hear some awesome talks. So thanks so awesome. much for coming Glad on. There is so much to talk about, Dom. We could go for another couple of hours. Yeah, let's do it again. I would love to. I appreciate your time so much. Have a great night, my friend. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Paul. All right, you guys. Thanks for listening. Check out the Fundamental Health Insider, www.paulsaladinomd.com, front slash insider, to become an insider to get all the cool stuff happening to hear about articles that I think are interesting to hear what's happening with me to hear about the podcast to hear about future guests to hear about podcasts I've been on to hear about cool stuff I like check out Juve .juve, www.juve J-O-O-V-V dot com front slash Paul I'm going to be talking a whole lot more about this soon we filmed some really cool stuff recently and like I said I'm going up to the Center for Deuterium Depletion so that'll probably be next week's podcast or the week after we'll see I'm going to talk to Laszlo Boros and Dr. Q up there And then check out Ancestral Supplements, ancestralsupplements.com. I really appreciate their sponsorship of this podcast and the grass-fed organ supplements that they provide. So that is all for this week. I appreciate you guys. Stay radical.